Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, February 25th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning and welcome back from your trip down to D.C. We're going to talk a lot about that coming up in a minute. <laughs> um, just to let some listeners know about some things that happened over this weekend, uh, Jan Simpson's latest podcast, uh, Stagecraft, she talked to uh, Martina Mayo about her uh, new show, Queens, at Lincoln Center Theater's LCT Clareto Theater. Also, Matt Tamanini talked, uh, spoke with uh, Ellen Marie Marsh in his uh, podcast, Tell Me More, uh, about her new show, Down at Joe's Pub. Both are really uh, good listens, so take a listen to that. Okay, let's talk about the show that's on everybody's lips. Oh, that's a different show, isn't it? So, <laughs> uh, last week, Michael was down in the D.C. area at the Kennedy Center to see chess. We also have on the phone with us Debbie Schrager, who is a listener who's uh, contributed to Broadway Radio a few times before. Debbie, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. Oh, it's my honor. So, Michael, give us an overview of chess. What do you think? Well, this was the first presentation of a new series at the Kennedy Center called Broadway Center Stage uh, of one of my favorite scores ever, uh, even though the show that it's wedded to has always been problematic. This is Chess, music by Benny Anderson and Bjorn Olvius, of, formerly of ABBA, and lyrics libretto by Tim Rice. Uh, and um, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, it's about world champion chess at the height of the Cold War in the 1980s. Uh, the American chess champion is named Freddie Trumper, believe it or not. Uh, so that had a lot of uh, resonance, uh, you know, this time around that maybe it didn't have before. Uh, and his opponent is the Russian Anatoly. Uh, the other two major characters are Freddie's second, Florence Vassy, who was born in hu Hungary and raised in Britain, and Anatoly's Russian wife, Svetlana, with, from whom he has uh, been separated and estranged for some time. Uh, I mm, do cannot understand why uh, Tim Rice and the Abigais decided that this show needed a new book at this point because uh, to me, the, the best versions of it that I have ever seen were the ones without uh, any spoken dialogue to speak of. The original concept album uh, – from uh, which was uh, really a, a worldwide hit, I would say, and deservedly so. Uh, the, then there was the two, two I'm sorry, the 2002 Actors Fund concert that I saw with Josh Groban, Adam Pascal, Julia Murney, Sutton Foster, etc. Uh, then there was a 2008 Royal Albert Hall concert with Groban and Pascal again and Adina Menzel. Uh, the Broadway, uh, the 1988 Broadway version with a with a book by Richard Nelson was a notorious flop. Uh, everyone 
seemed to think that Nelson's work was really, really not good at all. And the show had a very brief run. I had seen previously the London production, uh, which was one of the few uh, shows that I ever got to see in London, but I luckily got to see that was originally supposed to have been directed by Michael Bennett, but then he uh, became very ill and was not able to finish it. But that one also, it seemed to me, didn't have uh, that much, very little spoken dialogue. I I think the story, such as it is, is is fine. Some people have described the story itself as convoluted. Uh, I don't really think so, not in the original version. I think the songs tell the story fairly well, and uh, they don't need to fill in every single plot point. Uh, And so I... Sorry that this version has a new book by Danny Strong, which I thought just just really marred the show tremendously. And I don't think Michael Mayer as director did a very good job at all of bringing it all together. Um, Let's see. Strong's book is is different in content, but really no better than the Richard Nelson version. I would say there's too much plot. it's highly melodramatic, and, and now it is convoluted, I believe. I would say the story is now very convoluted. And also, um, there was an injection of humor to the story, which, although I understand why he did it, I thought it was very inappropriate in many points and, and not effective. Um, an indication to me of how flawed the book is, is that there is a narrator in addition to all of the added dialogue that makes the show uh, inflates it to the point where the running time is almost three hours. So aside from and over and above all that dialogue, there's narration that was delivered uh, in this performance by Bryce Pinkham, who functioned as the narrator and then also stepped into the role of the arbiter when that uh, song came across came through, which is one of my favorite songs, by the way. Um, The orchestra for this production was on scaffolding at the rear of the stage. And uh, uh, at the back wall, there was a very, very large wide screen on which were projected copious film clips of the Cold War era featuring such uh, folks as uh, Presidents Carter and Reagan. Uh, Brezhnev made an appearance, Gorbachev. uh, And there's much discussion of the SALT II Treaty. Um, Aside from all of the added dialogue, I thought that there were other there were damaging changes in terms of the songs being shifted around. In particular, um, Heaven Help My Heart is now sung by Florence in Act One and Someone Else's Story by Svetlana in Act Two. And I'm sorry, but the lyrics of those songs made absolutely no sense in those new contexts. And I couldn't quite believe that I was seeing this happen. It's, It's as if... Uh, neither the book writer nor the director really paid attention to what the lyrics were saying. So that really amazed me. Also, I felt that there was no proper setup for Anthem or Pity the Child, which is really unfortunate because they're, again, two absolutely great, powerful, beautiful, very fantastic songs. Um, the uh, the cast uh, – oh, what else? Um, in this production, Freddie, uh, the American – chess champ is is portrayed as absolutely mentally ill we first see him on the floor almost in a fetal position and florence tells him you've got to take your meds uh, so they really ramped up that 
aspect of his situation, and I, I, I just thought that that was not necessary. Um, oh, completely cut, by the way, is the, the Embassy Lament song. Oh, my dear, how boring he's defecting. Uh, I don't know why they cut that, because I like that. Um, performances, Karen Oliva as Florence, uh, Karen Olivo as Florence, sang very well, uh, but I felt her portrayal was very heavily sarcastic and nasty, uh, again, largely the fault of the new script. Raul Esparza was intense and thrilling in a vocally very difficult role. Ramin Karimlu as Anatoly sounded great when singing with support and to me, not good at all when singing in straight tone, which he does, does all too frequently. I, I do wish he would uh, personally, I wish he would stop doing that. I don't know why he does that. And Ruthie Ann Miles, to me, was uh, vocally and dramatically quite bland as Svetlana. So I, um, this was a, a big disappointment for me. I have to say that uh, there seemed to be very mixed reactions from audience and other critics. Uh, there was a lot of cheering during the show, but I just felt that what was changed about it was almost all for the worse. And I wish I had been able to see um, the same cast in a, in a more, uh, in a production that more closely coincided with the original concept album. All right. Uh, Debbie, what did you think about this production? You saw it twice, right? I did. So, uh, yeah. And I do have some insights from having seen it twice. Mm. So, uh, we, I went the, the uh, first performance, which was on uh, the Wednesday night. I guess it went Wednesday through Sunday. And uh, the heavy hitters were in the house. Uh, Sir Tim Rice was there. And seated a couple rows behind me were uh, Bjorn and Benny. Um, so I, I, I need to give a dishonorable mention to the otherwise accomplished uh, sound designer, who is Kay Harada who is designing otherwise the glorious Bandit's Visit. Um, mm. The sound on Wednesday night was atrocious, horrible. Uh, the orchestra was drowning out the vocalists, and at intermission, my husband overheard Bjorn and Benny complaining about it. Um, so that was unfortunate. And then I noticed that Peter Marks, uh, you know, our, our local uh, Washington Post reviewer, uh, saw it Thursday, and I guess the sound problems had not yet been cured. Um, when I bent back on Sunday, though, the, the Sunday night, the very last performance, the sound was perfect. So I'm not sure what happened there, but, you know. And the, you I saw the Saturday afternoon performance, and that also, there, I would say there was not a problem in the balance between the voices and the orchestra. Okay, that's, that's really good to hear. But unfortunately, you know, for those people who only saw Wednesday night, you know, it, it was really hard to hear. And I was up close, and so, you know, it wasn't like a location problem. It was really a big sound problem. Um, the other thing, uh, uh, sort of inside baseball thing was there was rampant illness in this group of performers. Mm -hmm. Um, Wednesday, uh, evidently, um, I'm just looking my notes back. Uh, Ruthie Ann Miles was, was sick and seven months pregnant and not able to take any drugs. <laughs> so that may have been part of the bland performance, oh. although, um, 
Svetlana, I think, is sort of a, a tough role and yes. and sort of appears out of nowhere in this. In and, and I've never sort of liked the role. It's I think it's really hard. She sort of comes into this heightened environment, and I think it's a challenging role. But vocally, I think she was actually ill. But what happened, uh, unfortunately, was the next person to get really ill was Raul Esparza. Mm. Um, he was fine Wednesday night, but by Sunday he had a throat infection, and uh, there was an announcement before he went before the show began saying Raul Esparza has a throat infection, but he has agreed to perform. This was one of those moments where you understand why you know people get mad when performers call out. Well, he had no upper range at all. I mean, he he was such a trooper, and but he you know he has that un, you know special vibrato in his upper range. It, he had none of it, and really had to completely alter how he dealt with the performance and got through it. And uh, and he was still great. I mean, but of course, those of us who know what he can really sound like, you know, we're sorry not to be able to hear it. But the, it was amazing. He went on, mm. and. The fun part of the performance, I mean, that was not fun, but the, I think one of the things Michael said at the beginning, I think it's true. This is so successful as a concert property. You know, this makes a great concert. And the way it was done in this production was that the ensemble and principals were all in a semicircle uh, on stage throughout the production. And the fun of that was to see the reactions uh, of everyone as as their colleagues were performing, and particularly with Raul, who was really up there, you know, kind of just you you felt you could feel the pain in his throat, and and just kind of patting him on the leg or giving him support, and I uh, so you know that was an interesting aspect of it. I have to say I felt that the audience and every and I spoke to people and new people there who of a variety of age groups uh, and and all of them who had no experience with chess before absolutely loved this had a ball at this concert um, and overall I, I felt like the performances were really great I really liked her I thought that he kind of had the perfect blend of stoicism and sexiness to the part. And uh, I, you know, I found that his interactions with Karen Olivo were very believable. And particularly by the Sunday night, I felt like they had developed uh, a chemistry that even worked in a concert environment. I want to just give a big shout out also to Bryce Pinkham as the arbiter. No one was having more fun than Bryce Pinkham. And while I totally agree with Michael that the that the that the increasing role of the arbiter to be narrator narrator was overkill, he was clearly having fun. He was he did lots of funny things after one night in Bangkok, which I guess in this show because it's a great song, because <laughs> never have understood what what like it really doesn't serve any narrative purpose, but. <laughs> You know, he he's like he started mopping his brow. <laughs> no, the cast members had all stripped down to uh, to uh, red underwear, and he sort of comes up and was mopping his brow afterwards. And and you know, he he managed. I think the jokes that he were he was given landed well. Um, but I, I you know, 
I think the story, as Michael said, has really been sort of un- unnecessarily thrown hard in your face. I think I don't think it's that muddled of a book um, that it really needed all the exposition. Uh, some of the screen uh, things on the screen were interesting. There was a very funny uh, Cold War era uh, Reagan commercial involving a bear that was particular. You know, everyone enjoyed that. Some. Let's see. I don't know. Maybe most people in this conversation will remember that. Um, but um, uh, it was very funny. Uh, and I just want to see what else I have to add. Uh, you know, it's funny. I went back. I looked back at Frank Rich's 1988 review. This, this, this may. This is one of the most vicious reviews I've ever seen. Mm. He, he said. For over three hours, the characters on stage at the Imperial yell at at one another to rock music. The show is a suite of temper tantrums, all amplified to a piercing pitch. You know, there is a lot of yelling each other to rock music, (laughs) but it's just so darn fun. And, you know, and these people are, are, you know, these performers are, you know, really at the top of their game. Uh, subject, you know, obviously the health issues aside. And so I think the audience had a great time. Um, so I'm glad I saw it. I would, I would see the concert again with, the, with Raul Esparza back to good health, which would sound. Yeah, we should mention that Danny Strong, who wrote the new book, his credits include TV's Empire and the films The Butler and Hunger Games. So he certainly has some really good credits. But I still don't know, aside from how I or anyone else may feel about this new book, I I don't know why um, Tim Rice and the Abigais decided that it was necessary. Maybe it's partly because of Danny Strong's uh, credits, but I, I I know I remember that uh, there's a video of the 2008 Royal Albert Hall concert, and there's an intro by Tim Rice where he says something like, um, "We've been we've been working on this show for 25 years, and I think we're finally starting to get it right." But there again, that was a, a, a performance basically without any book in terms of spoken dialogue or very, very little. So I'm, I would have thought that maybe that they had thought that was the, uh, that was the ultimate point that they had gotten the show to. And I, I kind of wish maybe that they had, I just, I just don't think that all of that dialogue is necessary. Uh, I, I guess I made that point before and I, I, uh, you know, there there has been a great disagreement over this this recent production on that score. So I guess if if it is done again, if it has a future life, there were there was talk of Broadway, a lot of talk of Broadway. Uh, if it moves to Broadway, I guess everyone else will be able to make their own decision on that. Right. I noticed that Danny Strong is is kind of moving into the theater world. You know, I I looked it up. You know, I I know him from. I don't know if any of you ever watched Gilmore Girls, but he had sort of a recurring girl role on Gilmore Girls, which is well, well how many of us know him. Who was? Uh, but um, he was. Um, uh, blanking Doyle McAllister. Paris. Doyle. Paris's, Doyle. Thank you. Paris's boyfriend. Doyle. Okay. Yes, there you go. Doyle, okay. Paris's boyfriend. So that's Danny Strong, but he is uh, evidently working on. Uh, 
Sinatra musical on the West End ah. right now. And he is also working on a remake of Oliver for Disney. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So this is, uh, he was at all, I think he may have been, he was in town for the whole weekend. He was definitely there Wednesday night and he was there Sunday night as well. Um, you know, I saw him both times, but yeah, I mean, one has to think that, that, that the intent here was to experiment for the future. You know, I'm not sure about that. Uh, I mean, with this cast, you know, there's no doubt that you would sell tickets. So how many ensemble but, members did they have? Do you know, was it, you know, 10? Was it 20? Was it, you know, huge? Somewhere in the middle, I yeah. think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good ensemble. There was sort of a, a dance number at one point that I thought seemed a little misplaced between three of the performers. I don't know what you thought about that, Michael, but, um, how did they do some one of the other Bangkok? Work the, so a... they all came out, they all came out in, 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 they all had sort of a grayish toned clothing. And then what they did was they all had on red lacy underwear, including the men, um, underneath their outfits and started taking all their clothes off. Um, and then, you know, Raul Esparza had a great time gyrating with them all over the set. If if I were a New York producer thinking about bringing chess in, I would model it after Chicago as much as possible. I mean, do you think it would work, Michael, Debbie, do you think it would work in that type of sort of stage concert thing rather than a full-out production? Well, as Debbie mentioned, it, it really was actually very much like that. The, the orchestra was exactly. on, on scaffolding or risers, and, and the cast, for the most part, the ensemble and, and the entire cast were seated in chairs in a semicircle at the, at the base of the scaffolding unit. Um, so it's funny you say that, James, because that is very much what it was. Hmm. Right. And... Um... Uh, Peter Marks, that local reviewer for the Penny Saber down there, um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly fell, I nearly fell off my chair when you said Peter Marks was a local reviewer because you know, yeah, right. <laughs> but he is our local reviewer. Yes, I know. Is. I, yes, I guess he, he absolutely is. He and just as Ben Brantley is our local reviewer up here. Mm. That's yes, right. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> uh, so um, Peter Marks gave it uh, a, a good notice, and uh, Riedel has been writing that there's a transfer. We know that there's a production in London happening right now, so it seems as though there's um, there is a it's a hot topic right now to to bring chess back. And as uh, as Matt Tamanini and I would talk about on today on Broadway, as Matt whips out the color coded spreadsheet. Uh, how are we going to get chess into New York uh, is, a, is a whole other question. So- well, as I, as I recall, although there was a great deal that was positive in Peter Mark's review, what he said about the, 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 the story and the book was largely negative. So I wonder if that's going to be addressed. Yes, I think that's, I think that's how, what I, how I recall the review as well. I think he closed the review by saying, gosh, what great, thrilling performers i'd love to see them in something else <laughs> um 
I think that's how he ended the review, actually. Yeah. So you it know, wasn't entirely um, a money review. But I, ha- I have uh, ADD, so I never make it to the end of a review. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was prepping for this conversation. <laughs> but, but, you know, and the other thing is, of course, Raul Esparza has just completed his time on TV as a regular yeah. on SVU. And so not too coincident you know this the timing of this concert uh, and that may not be totally coincidental coincidental right right uh, hmm. so uh and uh, you mentioned the sound issues uh on wednesday uh, yeah. uh I, I did you mention that did it get sorted out by sunday when you saw it at the closing it it did very much so. It just was, uh, as I said, it was unfortunate that the that the whole creative team was in the house Wednesday night, uh, mm-hmm. as well as lots of paying customers, of course. Uh, but yes, it absolutely was sorted out. It was just unfortunate that that you know Raul Esparza was was really really suffering to be. I mean, it was. It was amazing that he went on. I never saw anything like that, and. You know, if you look in social media, you'll see some comments from Ernine about, you know, watching his colleague go through that and sort of putting himself out there and, and being vulnerable. I mean, cracking and everything, you know, oh, but, well, but being mean, willing to perform. Oh, yeah. Pity oh, yeah, the child. Up... Pity the child is oh, a yeah. high C, you know. Even, uh, even yeah, if you he, have, yeah. 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 Even if you're in tip top vocal shape, that that one is a killer. So if you're if you got a throat infection, I can't even imagine. That's really too bad. He didn't try. Right. Exactly. He just didn't try. You know, he you know, he uh, what, oh, I'm forgetting who I want to compare him to, you know, from uh, My Fair Lady. He he spoke talk. He 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 didn't really sing. He Rex, Rex, he Harrison. Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how he did it. Well, um, but, and- you know, his acting was great. And, you know, the audience didn't seem to mind. I think everyone was so grateful that they could see as much of them, uh, much as much of him as they did and that he didn't that he was willing to get up there. So he got a lot of support from the audience. And it's of course it's more difficult when you do an extremely limited run of something like this. Then there there's uh, there's unlikely to be uh, to even be an understudy, and uh, you know people feel more compelled to try to go on if they possibly can because it's such a brief run. Uh, so um, there there've been a, a few incidences in encores shows where that has been an issue, and uh, you know what what can you do? You just have to make the best of it. You know right. Uh, you know all the th- three theaters at the uh, Kennedy Center, uh, and have you ever been backstage at the Kennedy Center? It, it you have uh, colored lines on the ground where you can follow the lines to go to the correct stage. Uh, so be- because the, all the backstage and dress rooms and everything are so far away from the stage, or so it looks like a hospital. You know, when the hospitals used to have colored lines on the floors, um, you know they could have. Uh, you know, gone across the hall to West Side Story and gotten a Tony to, to come on as play Freddie. You know, I've gotten Corey to- Cott, right? Yeah, most Tonys would know the Freddie the Freddie role inside and out already. So, uh, good point. You know, <laughs> um, Debbie, before we let you go, um, I didn't I didn't follow up on this. Did you get a chance to see Michael Urie in Hamlet? I did. You did. Uh, I Do did. You want to tell us yes. a, a, a quick one minute uh, review on it? 
Wow. A one minute review of that would be very difficult. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, I'll start off by saying yeah. that, that I will run. I mean, in fact, I've already bought my Torchstone tickets. Uh, you know, I will run to see Michael Yuri in anything and everything in the future. That said, uh, I was not completely enthralled with Hamlet. I think this is this has been a very divisive production. The conceit has was you know sort of a modern day uh, totalitarian kind of everyone's watching you, and I found some of the uh, the things that were done like people talking on cell phones and things to be incredibly mm. distracting. Um, I'll just give one example: Hamlet's in the bedroom scene. You know, one of the great scenes in all of theater and he's showing pictures of his father to his mother on his phone. <laughs> I, I don't want to see anything between Hamlet's body and his mother's body in that scene. You know, mm. I found that to be distracting or like the watch had like security jackets on. And so people giggled. I don't think Hamlet's ghost appearing is funny. Uh, and so I didn't, uh, so in any event, and some of the supporting performances were kind of bland. So uh, I know other people who loved it. So I practiced, someone, I almost got into a fist fight with someone. <laughs> for this. I, and I used, I, I rescued myself with, with Peter's famous line. I'd rather you had a good time than agree with me. <laughs> and, and, and I saved myself. So. But but um, it's, it's worth a very seeing. Useful line. It, wor <laughs> it is a very useful line. It it, I, it was great. I was <laughs> I was at the Helen Hayes nominations and got into a conversation with someone who sees a lot of theater, and he was not pleased with my assessment. So, but yeah. So uh, I think I think it's here until March 10th or 11th. If people haven't caught it, I mean, it's worth seeing if nothing else. For you know, Michael Yuri is using a lot of his comedic chops. I think the director. As as wonderful as of a director he is, he should have reined him in more. But but I still found him thrilling. On you can't take your eyes off him. He he's really a great talent. And that's yes. uh, Hamlet at the Shakespeare Theater Company. Uh, I have down here. It's running through March fourth, but it might have extended since mm. I, I had my notes. It that's may it. be extended a bit. Yeah, I think there's still a few more performances. Maybe maybe I have the date incorrect, but there's definitely a few more performances. That's at the Sydney Harmon Hall in Washington, D.C. Debbie, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us about the theater scene in D.C. We appreciate it. Thank you. We've had an embarrassment of riches lately. It's, it's, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael, after – was it before or after seeing Chess, you ran across uh, the Kennedy Center to see West Side Story. Which was it? It was after Chess was the matinee in the Eisenhower Theater on Saturday, and um, West Side Story was the evening performance down the hall in a concert hall that night. Yeah, and uh, well, I really wanted to see this because uh, for, for for many reasons, this is the Bernstein Centennial and the Jerome Robbins Centennial, uh, and this, uh, as it occurred to me would be and and turned out to be my first time that I heard the entire score of the show played by a full-size symphony orchestra on stage. Um, I've heard only sections of it played in that fashion, and I, I 
I thought it would be worth the trip for that alone, and it certainly was for the orchestra playing under uh, of the, of the National Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Stephen Reinecke, who also is the conductor of the New York Pops, and also uh, the the ensemble and most of the soloists did a really really fabulous job. So more on that later. Uh, this was a ninety minute concert version. It was. As I said, virtually the entire score. I think the only thing I noticed that was cut was the very end section of the Somewhere Ballet, the Nightmare section. They just um, they cut that because of uh, for logistical reasons, I guess, for going into the next part of the show. Uh, there was very little dialogue from Arthur Lawrence's book, and I would say limited choreography, and none of it by Jerome Robbins. This is. I, maybe the first pro- mm. first professional production presentation of West Side Story that I've seen without the Robbins choreography. Um, and as I say, there was, uh, I would say, only maybe about, mm, well, a, a, a much smaller percent, percentage of the score was choreographed. And the, even the credit, uh, there wasn't even a choreography credit, actually, in the in the program, it said musical staging by Eric Sean Fogel. And it, even that was in very small type. So the emphasis was not on that aspect of the, of the show. It was really on the music, which is so phenomenal and glorious and immortal and classic. Um, very good cast overall. Soleil Pfeiffer as Maria, Corey Cott, whom, uh, Many of our listeners would know from Bandstand and Gigi on Broadway. And before that, I saw him in Newsies on Broadway. Uh, Krista Rodriguez uh, from The Adams Family, among other things, as Anita. Ephraim Sykes as Riff. And Joel Perez from Fun Home as Bernardo. Uh, Corey Cott, I would say, was the was the vocal star of the performance. He absolutely gorgeous singing with full operatic high notes. I had never quite heard him sound so phenomenal before because I never had heard him sing that kind of music before. He was uh, about the best Tony I've ever heard. None better. Uh, Soleil Pfeiffer as Maria, beautiful singing, but um, of all things, her Maria suffered from being terribly misdirected by Francesca Zambello, to be very, very sexually aggressive, which is not – I'm sorry. That's not the character of Maria. I guess maybe this was done as a sort of a um, a, a, a nod towards uh, you know portraying Maria as stronger and a more modern woman. But I, that's just not her. I mean she has lines in the show that, that indicate that that's not what she is. And also we have at least one other character in the show who is more – sexually aggressive and, and stronger in that way. And that's Anita. So I, I thought that was a huge mistake. Um, Krista Rodriguez sang very well in America, but believe it or not, she shouted most of a boy like that rather than singing it because it was too low for her. And I have to say that that really surprised me. I I was surprised that if she couldn't do it, that they just didn't get somebody else because I, we don't want to hear a boy like that shouted. Uh, and Joel Perez was fine as Bernardo, but had almost nothing to do because uh, there was very little dialogue. And they, the version of America that was done, although the shark men were in it, they didn't sing anything They and, and did very little dancing. They just kind of 
stood around and reacted to the women. Uh, and Bernardo had no no solo singing in this version, not even in the quintet. So uh, it was nice to see Daryl Perez, but he he was underused. Um, something really interesting happened. Stephen Reinecke uh, had to restart. Uh, this, they started at the beginning of the prologue, and I heard a few really bad notes from the orchestra. And then he, about a minute and a half, he stopped and he said, I'm sorry, the orchestra can't play without lights. <laughs> and I hadn't realized that the orchestra lights hadn't come on, which is kind of incredible in a, you know, in a venue like the Kennedy Center. So they brought on the orchestra lights and more lights on stage, and then they started again and and all those bad notes were no longer there. Um, and the orchestra after that played beautifully throughout some of the tempos I thought were a little too slow and stolid for me, but most of them were, were just right on. Uh, and I, as I said, I, uh, I was very happy to hear the full score played by an orchestra that size there. It's, it's incredible. The original orchestrations, needless to say, um, I, uh, I do not believe that there is an equivalent presentation scheduled for New York City this year uh, or last year, even though last year was the uh, the 60th anniversary of the, sh- the opening of West Side Story. And this year, as I said, 2018 is the centennial of uh, the birth of both Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins. So I'm I uh, maybe something will happen and hasn't been announced yet. We'll have to see about that. But uh, in the meantime, I'm I'm really very 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 glad that I got to see this concert down at the Kennedy Center. But Michael, this brings up a very good question that I've had for mm. years, and that is: um, actors memorize lines, actors memorize songs. Why don't mm. musicians memorize music? I mean, why do they have music in front of them? Uh, why is it, uh, after, you know, after a few performances, don't they know what they're supposed to do? I, mean, I There may be a very good reason for this, but I've never had anybody uh, convincingly tell me why uh, musicians don't memorize music. I know. Well, I, I mean, I, I... Oh, I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm not yeah, asking no, but, no, I no, know. I, 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 I would say... Meaning it's... you really know for sure, Jane, that's what you yes. mean. Yes, Okay, tell why. me. Good, I'm ready. Um, because if you go and, uh, look at a, it, it, yes, the (laughs) the second, second trumpet or the first violin or something like that will know West Side Story. They won't know what's, what is specific to that performance, where things have been cut, where things have rests, where, um, different orchestrations have been put in and where... They will do different things. So yes, just as like somebody might know, you know, an actor might. Yeah, we were joking before about, you know, grab Tony from across the hall to come play Freddy in chess. He would know chess. He wouldn't know exactly what was different about that specific production of chess. And they don't practice like as uh, an orchestra uh, does not practice as much or rehearse as much as a uh, a cast does. And so they might you, you, they might be playing they might be working on several different scores at the same time. Yeah, and they might even uh, be playing in, in in multiple orchestras at the same time. And that's and, fair. It never even occurred to me that, of course, I often hear about musicians subbing in pits, and it seems yeah. to go on a lot. So yeah, so good. You've answered my question. Thanks, James. Well, but also they. Uh, I mean, they did uh, play <laughs> before the lights came on. They, they for the most part, they were they were you know playing the score without being able to see it. So I think a lot of them do 
do exactly what you're saying, Peter. And I've seen uh, some conductors conduct entire, you know, symphonies and operas from memory. Uh, I think it's just uh, some uh, ability that some people have and some don't. so, so yeah, I guess that's my answer to that question. Now I'm going to get myself in trouble here, Michael. But oh, <laughs> uh, but I, I've played in some <laughs> bands, and sometimes a conductor <laughs> has less to do with the success of a piece, and the conductor doesn't really the the audience really can't tell when a conductor screws up, right. You know, they can they can tell when is when an instrument is playing when they shouldn't be playing and things like that. So I mean, a conductor playing from memory or conducting from memory is much different than a first violin playing from memory. Well, a, a friend of mine who used to sing with the Boston Opera told me that when Sarah Caldwell conducted, after a while she simply got tired and just put her arms down and didn't do anything. I mean, she needed to, she needed that time to rest uh, to get back into conducting so uh, I, I remember that vividly well wow. with her eyes we've seen yes that. right <laughs> you know and the only people who see that are the actors and the audience i mean the actors and the uh, and the uh, orchestra the audience sure. never sees sure. the conductor's sure. face you know do right. a lot of back, back acting right so. <laughs> All right, so let's move forward into our next thing, which will be, uh, Peter, why don't you give us something we don't normally do, but we're going to do a preview of Subways Are For Sleeping. Um, Peter, has the, uh, have the producers of Subways Are For Sleeping gone out and found another Peter Felicia from New York? <laughs> How funny. I know what you're talking about, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, for those who don't know Subway's After Sleeping, it's a 1961 musical with music by Julie Stein, book and lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Uh, they were working together for the fifth time, so uh, they knew they could work together very well. Now, this is six years before Hair, and yet it was a musical about dropouts, people who wanted to get out of the rat race, and they found different ways of surviving. So I talked to Phyllis Newman about it. She was Mrs. Adolph Green for 42 years from 1960 until his death in 2002. So they were essentially newlyweds when Green started working on it and the collaborators actually wrote the role of Martha Vale for Mrs. Green. Now Martha Vale had won the coveted beauty contest title of Miss Watermelon, Miss Cotton Blossom, and Miss Southern Comfort. But you know those beauty contest titles don't bring in any money. So how's she going to pay last month's rent, this month's rent, next month's rent? Well, so as a result, she only wore a towel in her apartment so that if the landlord came into evicted, she'd pull it off and claim he was violating her. So the landlord stays away. And so as a result, she's not paying her rent and getting away with it. So uh, Miss Newman would play the part, clearly. Or would she? The producer was the notorious David Merrick, who said to Green, Your wife doesn't look like a beauty contest winner to me. So Miss Newman had to audition five times for the part her husband wrote for her. Now imagine what it was like in the Green household after each audition where Phyllis was told, we'll let you know. In her autobiographical show, called My Mother Was a Fortune Teller originally, and it was later called The Mad Woman of Central Park West. She gave one of my favorite lines of all time, of all time, and that is, 
This is the only time in the history of show business where the actress got the part by not sleeping with the author. You know, because really, imagine uh, how frigid uh, the atmosphere was in the uh, Green household. All right. So when the show opened in Boston, Newman, not star Carol Lawrence, got the notices. And Merrick then said, you know, we should make the whole show about her. Well, it was too late to do that. uh, But Merrick had changed his mind. Or did he? Because, in fact, when the Tonys came around and Newman was nominated, so was newcomer Barbara Streisand for I Can Get a Few Wholesale, another show that Merrick produced. The night of the Tonys, Merrick was seated at a table. Yeah, they sat at tables then. It was a a dinner banquet type thing. And he was seated next to Newman. And before the best featured actress in a musical was about to be revealed, Merrick turned to Newman and said, I voted for Streisand. And the winner was Phyllis Newman. Actually, um, Phyllis Newman told me that Streisand has been a good sport about this. And she even invites her to her concerts, even to the recent one at the Barclays Center. So... All right. Alluding to what James was saying earlier, subways will always be remembered for the famous ad that David Merrick took out after the opening. He knew the show wasn't going to get raves, so he decided to create his own ad. He found seven people who had the same names as the seven newspaper critics. Yes, there were seven New York newspapers then. And he had his press agent, the marvelous Harvey Sabinson, take them to dinner and the show and said, here's what you're going to say. And um, including such lines as, Subway's Off of Sleeping is the musical of the century. Which meant more than Ben Brantley's statement that the Book of Mormon is the musical of the century, because 60 years, 61 years of the century had passed when Subway's opened, and only 11 years had passed when Book of Mormon opened. Well, I once had the chance to ask Betty Comden, what did you think of this mock ad? And her face turned very grim. And she said, that wasn't funny, not funny at all. But I never had the chance to ask Phyllis Newman or Adolph Green what they thought of the ad. So this time I did ask uh, Phyllis Newman what she and Adolph thought of it. And she said, and I quote, we laughed our asses off. All right. So you have one more weekend to see if you'll laugh your gluteus maximi off while seeing subways this upcoming week. I do think you'll certainly like the score. Okay. So, um, Michael. You got a chance to see Hangman. Uh, we talked about it last week. Uh, Peter gave his review. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Smart McDonough show, what your take on it was? Oh, yeah. I, I caught up with uh, two shows uh, a little late. And also I realized, you know, I was away last week, so I couldn't be on the podcast. But I did just want to mention Hangman and Jerry Springer, the opera. Uh, Hangman is uh, Martin McDonough play at the Atlantic Theater company uh linda gross theater and it uh has a lot of buzz deservedly so and i think that um it's kind of really interesting that as i'm sure you've discussed with matt Tamanini, um martin mcdonough aside from his achievement here um is very very much in the news because his film uh, for which he wrote, this, wrote the screenplay, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, is nominated for Academy Awards uh, in several categories, including Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay. So I think uh, that it's I, – I, I don't think that hurts uh, <laughs> all of the attention that's being focused on Hangman, which is a really wonderful production directed by Matthew Dunster. Uh, and I think that um, – I, I always 
really enjoy McDonough's stage plays. I think he's one of our best writers, and I would urge you to try to get to see this down at the Linda Gross Theater. But if you don't, I think it's very likely, uh, very likely that you may see it on Broadway, and, and apparently maybe even sooner rather than later, because uh, I hear that they're trying to move it uh, within this season, which would be a quickie, but who knows? Uh, we'll see. It, you know, it depends on so many variables, including availability of a theater, obviously. Uh, also, great deal of Broadway buzz for Jerry Springer, the opera, the new group production at the Pershing Square Signature Center. Uh, not my favorite show uh, because I think it, to a large degree, it's a kind of a one joke show about uh, all of these people behaving horribly and saying the most vile things to each other. A lot of it's set to very florid uh, music that sounds operatic or as if from an old oratorio and uh, some Broadway type tunes as well. Um, but this is, uh, Music and lyrics by Richard Thomas, book and additional lyrics by Stuart Lee and Richard Thomas. This is the first fully staged, um, well, certainly a New York production, and I think maybe the first one in, in this country. It had been done in England, and I had seen a concert version at Carnegie Hall some years ago. Um, this production is very well directed, I would say, by John Rando. It's very immersive. Uh, it, it's in a, a modified three-quarter thrust staging, and the uh, the, the people who play um, the, uh, the guests on Jerry Springer's show uh, – are frequently sitting in the audience. So uh, you're going to feel like you're very much a part of the act. And if that's something you like, you're, you're going to really like it. And if not, then, then you won't. Um, Terrence Mann is Jerry Springer. And, uh, and Will Swenson plays the warm-up guy. And then also he, later he, be, turns up as, <laughs> he turns up as Satan. Uh, so those are, those are two of the uh, marquee names in it. But the, the quality of the voices uh, in this production uh, for for the for the people who play the contestants is just 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 incredible. People like Jill Pace and Nathaniel Hackman uh, and uh, Elizabeth Loyacano, uh, Justin Keys. Really, really, as far as that is concerned, they they couldn't have found a better cast. So we'll see. Uh, it's a very divisive show. Uh, I, I've, I know that there are some people that agree with me that it's a little bit of a one joke thing that goes on too long, but other people just love it. And um, we'll see if it, if that does have a, a future life and, well, and when. Yeah, I, I I wonder about this because um, it gets very profane, um, yeah. and it's one thing for uh, guests on the Jerry Springer show to be profane. We expect that from guests on the Jerry Springer show. No problem there. But in the second act, you mentioned Satan, but Jesus mm. Christ shows up too, yeah. and so does, so does God himself, right. and they are pretty profane. Now the question becomes, well, Broadway is basically a tourist industry now, and tourists come from all around the country to see Broadway shows. Will the audience from out of town really want to put up with God and Jesus uh, speaking profanely? Now, it 
because they've never had that experience with Jerry Springer. Needless to say, God and Jesus Christ never showed up on network TV. But the thing is, I do believe that a number of people will be tremendously offended by this uh, happening. So um, I don't think the prospects for a commercial run in New York are that sensational, given the tourist market. There would have been a time when New Yorkers went to the theater more often than not that um, – it might have passed muster, but considering the dynamics of who goes today, they may not have the audience that they're hoping to get. I was reminded that there were major protests when it was done at Carnegie Hall some years ago. Did you remember that? Yes, and uh, that brings up something else. Uh, I may have said this already, but and it sounds like I'm changing. I am changing the subject, but um, I, it was so interesting to me when NBC announced they were going to do Jesus Christ, Christ Superstar as an Easter special. Mm. Given the fact that in 1971 there were protests out the, outside the theater like crazy that this yeah. was so blasphemous. <laughs> so in the 47 years, suddenly it's turned from blasphemous for something that's an Easter special and not even on cable. So uh, the world does change. So maybe I'll be proved wrong, uh, as often happens, um, and, G- and Jerry Springer will be this major, major hit that tourists just love and flock to. But I'm dubious. Well, you know, uh, just very quickly, I, as I may have mentioned before, I have been very surprised that some of the content of the Book of Mormon has, not, pre- has not prevented that from being a huge uh, hit. That's fair. That's a very good rebuttal. You so bet. it's maybe not as yeah. out there, and yeah. uh, I mean... Yeah. Jesus is in Book of Mormon, as I as I recall. Maybe he's maybe he's portrayed uh, not quite as uh, well. I, I maybe it's not as offensive in some people's eyes. In that, maybe it's a. I don't know. I, I can't really say how pe- different people react to it. But that is just an observation that I made. <laughs> Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, Book of Mormon's been around for seven years now, and uh, if there's been an empty seat, it's because the person got sick, not because it wasn't sold. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that's a very good rebuttal, Michael. In the beginning of Book of Mormon, weren't there protests? Or no, I can't. I don't recall any. You may be right, James, but I can't recall any. Yeah, it's kind of hazy. That it show's been uh, playing forever. And we'll yeah. continue to. We'll continue it's still to, yeah. still hard to get tickets to Book yes, of Mormon in yes, that tiny O'Neill. Yes, it is. All right. So uh, we hit Hangman and Jerry Springer. So next up in the list here is uh, Peter got a chance to see a marriage contract at the Metropolitan Playhouse. So tell us about that, Peter. I love the Metropolitan Playhouse. Um, I think Alex Rowe does a phenomenal job. With this, uh, he's the artistic director, and um, what he does is essentially what Jonathan Bank does for the Mint. What the Metropolitan Playhouse is is really the downtown Mint Theater. He finds these obscure plays and puts them on, and I'm so glad he does, and uh, they always do a wonderful job with them too. A Marriage Contract was written by Augustine Daly, who was a big deal back in the late uh, 1800s. He got a lot of plays produced. He even had his own theater in New York. Now, this one, a marriage contract, if you do uh, research, you won't find anything on it because that isn't the real name of the play. The real name of the play was a test case, Grass versus Granite. Uh, Grass versus granite, what does that mean? Well, you'll see when I discuss the plot a bit. And this is about the fact that there is this young man who lives in the city, and he's fallen in love with a girl from the country. And um, the play is startling from his first seconds because we're in the 1800s now, and the young man 
the way he deals with the older father is <laughs> is something you don't expect to see happen until the baby boomer era was suddenly um, young people who had no respect whatsoever for their elders. But this guy doesn't care what the father thinks at all. He is going to marry this girl, and that's all there is to it. And no matter what the father says, I mean, he has no respect for him whatsoever. So that's pretty startling. Well, anyway, the father says, okay, we're going to compromise. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to move out here. So this is where grass versus granite takes uh, effect. Um, you are going to move out here, and you're going to live out here with your, uh, with your wife. If you love her so much, you'd be willing to do that. So the guy says, well, all right, okay, I'll do that. Well, you know, um, <laughs> how are you going to keep them down on the farm um, after they've seen New York? That's the real uh, conundrum here. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, but there's a subplot, too, about a woman who finds out that her husband is philandering. And as a result, she decides she's going to dump him. That's it. You know, I've had it. And again, this is startling as well, because women in those days basically um, grinned and, and, and bore it. Um, that There was nothing they could do. They didn't have skills to go out and work in the world and all that. So you have to admire this woman, too. So. To find out this play was written in the late 1800s is is just a revelation because you would never expect this to be the case here. So uh, an excellent cast um, headed by Mike Durkin, who I've known as an improver, a very good improver. But here he is playing the father and doing a superb job of it, as is everybody else in the show. The Metropolitan Playhouse is way on the east side. Um, you have to go near Avenue A. And uh, it's upstairs from uh, the Connolly Theater. It's a very small space. So if you're going to get tickets, you better do it fast because um, (laughs) seats are at a premium at the Metropolitan Playhouse. But this is a company that I really think needs to make the next leap. And I do believe they deserve your attention. Um, Just as the Mint moved from its uh, ramshackle beginnings to uh, a much nicer venue now, I'm looking forward to Metropolitan Playhouse doing that as well. So do your part to get over there and uh, support them when they're in their tiny theater so that they can move to a big one. And I think you're going to be very, very surprised, even with all I've told you, because there are a number of twists and turns in this show that you need to see. So a marriage contract, Metropolitan Playhouse. I haven't seen this show, but I just want to say that I think it's absolutely fantastic when uh, places like this company and the Mint do old plays that show us that people back in the day didn't necessarily always behave in the way that we would have thought they would at that time. And (laughs) another very recent example is the Mint's production of the play Hindle Wakes. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and, and I, I just think it's good to know because we, you know, maybe we may have this idea in our heads about uh, the, the, well, the way women behaved at a certain time or, uh, you know, uh, just people from different social classes or mm-hmm. and and then to see the the mold being broken in very very old plays i think that's mm-hmm. fascinating mm-hmm. yep all right so uh talking about classics michael you got to see broadway classics in concert at the uh, manhattan concert productions so tell us about that yes uh manhattan concert productions uh, Broadway Classics in Concert. It was Tuesday the 20th at Carnegie Hall. And uh, these were kind of greatest hits and highlights from previous concerts that this this uh, company, uh, this, this production company has done, uh, including 
Ragtime by Flaherty and Aarons, Titanic by Maury Yeston, Parade uh, by Jason Robert Brown, and The Secret Garden music by Lucy Simon, book and lyrics by Marcia Norman, plus other music by uh, some some of those composers. And uh, the, the superb musical director was Kevin Stites. And what this... Uh, what Manhattan Concert Productions does is they bring uh, they have major major Broadway people in the as the leads and feature performers. This this one concert uh, had Michael Arden, Sierra Bogus, Carolee Carmelo, Alan Corduner, Nikki Renee Daniels, Quentin Earl Darrington, Ramin Karimlu, whom I had just seen uh, like two days before. In chess in DC, uh, Norm Lewis, Laura Osnes, Leah Salonga, Ryan Silverman, and Tony Yazbek. And then uh, the chorus is made up of huge amounts of people, uh, young people from all over the country who uh, come. I'm not sure what exactly the the arrangement is uh, if if they pay to come or but but anyway they they are allowed to to uh, they are enabled to come to New York and perform in major halls. Uh, some of the past concerts have been at Avery Fisher, uh, now the Gavin Hall, and, and this one and, and one previous concert was at Carnegie Hall, which obviously you can't do better than that. Um, it was a very thrilling evening to have uh, all of those um, all of those major talents that I mentioned and plus uh, the huge chorus. Uh, the way it was done for this show was that in the first half, uh, there were 200 chorus people on stage. In the second half, there were another 200 uh, chorus people on stage on Rises in the Back. And then uh, at the end uh, for the finale, which was actually not in the printed program, was the closing chorus from Titanic, which is basically uh, very similar to the opening chorus. And for that one, you had the, the 200 people on stage plus the other 200 uh, in the house. Uh, I think they were all in the balcony um, on the sides there. And so that was <laughs> was a, 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 a just an incredible wall of sound uh, in that amazing piece of music. Uh, what also made it special is that uh, I, I would say that all of the living composers and lyricists uh, featured in the evening were there. The only ones who weren't were the, were the Gershwins, <laughs> uh, who were not with us any longer and, uh, you know, who, who obviously wrote the music that was used in Crazy for You. Um, but this I, – I had not actually, for one reason or another, seen any of the previous concerts. Had you been to any or all of them, Peter? None. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's kind of, um, in a way, uh, off the radar. Uh, well, but not not for a lot of people, obviously, because there were tremendous amounts of fans there. But um, this time, I I knew about it ahead of time, and I and I asked uh, for press tickets, and I was very happily granted them. So I'm I'm thrilled that I went. It was it was a an unforgettable night actually there was some apparently some logistical problems unfortunately in getting people into the theater uh, i had friends who um said they were st still standing on the will call line mm -hmm. when the concert started and they were not the last people on the line i'm not sure exactly what the problem was there but i hope they uh they solved that for the future because as far as the actual quality of the performance it was quite extraordinary and to have all of those uh composers and lyricists all of whom came on stage at the end by the way and just kind of waved to everyone it was it was 
it, it was just extraordinary and unforgettable. Okay. So uh, that was Manhattan Concert Productions, Broadway Classics in Concert. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes where we... The way they're uh, crazy for you, which was, the, I guess, the most recent one that they did, was so successful that now we hear that it, that, that show is coming back to Broadway. It really spurred, uh, apparently, a Broadway revival. So fans of that show will be very happy to know that. I mean, with the talent that they put together plus Carnegie Hall and a first class concert. I, I don't oh, yeah. surprise doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Uh Peter, you went you went a walkin' down Broadway uh with uh Hamiltor, the tour where it happened. Uh, so this is by Broadway Up Close Walking Tours. So tell us about the Hamill Tour. Yes, uh, Tim Dolan, who you may have seen play Abraham and Alter Boys has this marvelous tour um, that takes place way down at the uh, edge of the water at Manhattan, uh, where you can even uh, spy the Statue of Liberty for a moment. Uh, he takes you to Stone Street, where Alexander Hamilton took his first steps in America. He takes out his iPad and shows you pictures of what um, the place looked back then. He tells you why Wall Street was called Wall Street. Uh, but he's had a, a great affinity for the musical as well. His uh, former girlfriend and a good friend of his uh, have appeared in Hamilton, and as a result, he knows a great deal about the show itself, too. He tells you uh, about David Corrin's, uh, how he originally designed the sets, ideas he had for the sets, ideas that were discarded for the sets because they were considered to be impractical, even though they were excellent ideas. He talks about the alternate choreography that they devised in case the turntable were not to turn on one night and what happened on the night when it did not turn. So um, he talks about how many flights of stairs people have to climb um, during the show, which is certainly quite the workout. He tells you where um, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, fudged some details for uh, necessary poetic license, dramatic license, um, had to do that and why he did that. And uh, that turns out to be very interesting, too, especially uh, an incident involving France's Tavern, which is still there um, and uh, is still in business and a nice place to go and eat, too, by the way. I've, I've had good times there. Uh, he takes you to Br Bowling Green Park, where the actual Hercules Mulligan took down the statue of St. George. And what happened after they took down the statue is uh, a very, very fascinating fact. So um, he shows you, too, about um, Jay Duckworth, the props guy, uh, what he had to do in the Helpless Satisfied number uh, where they needed candles. And there is such a detailed explanation of how these candles came to be and what had to happen that for a moment – for a moment, you will not resent uh, how much theater tickets cost when you see how much time and effort goes into making things such as this. Um, he takes you to where Alexander Hamilton lived at 26 Broadway, which is hardly uh, the, the house that um, um, he lived in. It's now a very different building. Um, he tells you information about when President Obama attended and what had to happen then, which was Really, really fascinating. Uh, he tells you in the uh, the number non-stops, there's a passing reference to a man named Levi Weeks. Well, he will tell you the entire story of what happened there. He also takes you to the Trinity Churchyard Cemetery uh, where um, Hamilton is buried, but also where Angelica Schuyler Church is buried. And it's very interesting that um, 
so many people now come to see Alexander Hamilton and said, um, is by any chance this Angelica here too? That they actually had to put up a plaque identifying her grave because indeed so many people are interested. So I think you'll be interested too. Uh, the tour takes about two hours. It's a lot of fun. Um, the walking isn't excessive in the worst sense of the word. He does allow you to sit um, at various intervals while he tells you all that he knows, and he knows plenty. So I do think it's a wonderful thing to do, and um, I think it would be a good idea to take it. Um, uh, he does it in the mornings uh, to do it before seeing a matinee of Hamilton, so that you'll even appreciate the show more. So not that Hamilton needs any more appreciation than it's been getting, and certainly has plenty to uh, rely on but still it's a terrific tour so i recommend it heartily my current i am currently working my current day job is across the street from 26 broadway at 25 broadway I and see. i i guess i i didn't actually realize that so thank you for telling me how funny yeah <laughs> All right, that's awesome. We'll have a link to Hamilton in the show notes as well so that you can plan your tour with uh, Broadway Up Close walking tours. All right, so uh, in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've had some notable passings that we haven't talked about. So uh, first, uh, uh, this past week, there was a memorial for uh, Gemsey Delap. So, Michael, talk about that. Yeah, Jemzy Delap, uh, who actually died uh, in on November 11th. Uh, she was a really, really great choreographer and dancer and disciple of the foremost disciple of Agnes DeMille. Um, Jemzy was in uh, original production of. Uh, 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 paint your wagon and she uh, Oklahoma not not on opening night but she went into that show and other credits include Brigadoon and she for for decades she would recreate Agnes DeMille's choreography for for uh, those and other shows in uh, it, it, productions all over the the country and the world she was very very loved and uh, and it was. I, I was happy that there was a, tri uh, a celebration of her life or a memorial or whatever you want to call it at the Bruno Walter Auditorium uh, this past Friday, the 23rd. Um, it was uh, Ted Chapin welcomed everyone. There was a tribute from Kathleen Marshall that was read by Diana Gonzalez, uh, a wonderful video montage of Jamesy's career by Chuck Pennington, uh, John Mount Cherry spoke, and there were um, a, a lot of wonderful people present in the audience. Uh, so to be there for Jemsey, and it was great to see really wonderful clips of her performing with the great late great James Mitchell and and others in these beautiful dance numbers from these shows. Um, so that. Uh, was someone who was just memorialized and then uh just just uh uh recently we we lost Nanette Fabre uh, who really was quite a big uh Broadway star back in the day and also quite well known from her work in film and television and she uh aside from everything else 
she won a Tony Award for as best best actress in a musical for Love Life in 1949, and uh, was also nominated for Mr. President in 1963. So uh, she uh, had not been active for a while. Uh, the only time I ever saw her on stage was in something called Bermuda Avenue Triangle, which I think maybe was. Uh, one of the last things she ever did, it was off Broadway. Uh, and so I can't really speak of her as a stage performer other than that, but perhaps Peter can, uh, fill in a little bit on that score. No, not at all. Uh, but, uh, she did a marvelous, um, rendition of, uh, some Kurt Vile songs at a Kurt Vile tribute some years ago. Um, I think it was a BAM, but, um, and I, I got to meet her afterwards and, um, Oh, wow. Just lovely, uh, no question. But just as perky as she, even um, in the early part of the century, just as perky as she was in the uh, the bandwagon movement, where she's so marvelous and that's entertainment and triplets. Uh, she's really terrific in triplets. Um, so yeah, I still regret that I didn't get in line in 1962 in that long, 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 long line that. Day tickets went on sale for Mr. President at the Colonial Theater in Boston. I've never seen a line as long in my life, and I know I never will, considering Internet now is where people buy tickets. But I didn't get in line, and I've regretted it ever since. So um, so I could have seen Nefebray in that, and even though that wasn't a successful show, everybody said she was quite marvelous in it, and she did get a Tony nomination, um, which was really something, considering how much of a disappointment the show was. So, um, yeah, but that's the best I can do about Nanette Febray. Didn't Mr. President have the largest advance sale up to its time? Sure did, yeah. yeah. Um, more than a million, which today would be very disappointing for uh, so many uh, people. Although an artistic director of a theater out of town did tell me that recently, um, as of opening night, he had sold 28 seats. So um, uh, times can be tough. So. Well, but what would you know? What would one million translate to yeah, into pre- present day dollars? Sure, sure. Because <laughs> mind boggling. Yeah, Mr. President probably told, sold out at 70000 a week, um, and pr- probably something like that when it was at the St. James. Mm. All right. So uh, before we wrap up and get into trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of Broadway Radio. There's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Um, Stitcher plays us, Google plays us, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Michael, for me can be found at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including all the productions down at Kennedy Center and the Hamlet and everything else in the Hamilton tour. So check that out as well at BroadwayRadio.com. So Peter, do we have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, what do these Tony-nominated Best Musical Losers have in common? La Plume de Matante from the 50s, Ilya Darling from the 60s, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas from the 70s, Black and Blue from the 80s, Miss Saigon from the 90s, Wicked from the aughts, and Something Rotten from our own decade right now. And the answer is, they all ran longer than the shows that beat them, which were Redhead, Hallelujah Baby, Sweeney Todd, Jerome Robbins Broadway, Rule Rogers Follies, Avenue Q, and Fun Home. Okay, Joseph Zugros was the first to get it, followed by Donald Tessioni, Ingrid Gammerman, and the felicitously named Brigadude. Um, on to this week's question. 
In the 50s, a Tony-winning musical had a cast member whose first and last name was precisely the same as a well-known and much-beloved character who appeared in a novel, a play, and a musical. What's this person and character's name? All right. So if you know that, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you are on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier, Debbie Strager, and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.